0: You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church.
1: This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And today is a Q&A episode. Are you excited, JT and Jen?
0: These are my favorite. Let's do it.
1: Jen's a little less excited. (laughs) The uh, Jen is not nearly as, as enthusiastic.
2: Yeah, I feel I feel a mix of apprehension and enthusiasm.
1: We'll see. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Well, listen, we got so many good questions. Let me just pause and say something that we don't say enough. Thank you for listening to Knowing Faith. We really, I, I genuinely believe we have one of the best and most gracious audiences out there. And it is really fun to do this podcast for a group of people that I think has really kind of embrace the culture of the show, which is gracious and charitable conversation. And we love that you want to interact with the show. And so we got so many good questions. We got questions from Instagram and from Patreon and from the Knowing Faith podcast, Facebook page. And so if you submitted a question, thank you. We're not going to be able to get to every question that was submitted. There just were too many good questions. And so we've picked some of those questions and I'm sure in future episodes, we will have an opportunity to circle back to some the other questions. We keep a list of all those questions and kind of look at them occasionally. Uh, Some of the questions we're delaying because we think that we will explore them uh, in the content for next season. And so I'm happy to tell you, and I think this will be for the first time, that in the next season of Knowing Faith in the spring, we will be doing the rest of the book of Genesis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry, JT. We're gonna have to wait a little bit longer on that church history one. Uh, We're gonna continue on with Genesis, kind of how we've been doing it this time around, exploring the text, bringing in guests to talk about it with us and doing deep dives on core doctrines as they emerge uh, in the Bible. And so we'll be in Genesis 12 through the end of Genesis. In this spring. And so we'll be covering a lot of terrain, and we're excited to be doing that. Some of the questions that were asked, we feel like, oh, we're going to hit that next season. So we tabled those but I did want to get to some of your questions today. So let's start right off the bat with a great one about Genesis. When you say that we're asking Genesis questions that it's not asking itself, is that literal? How would I apply that to other books of the Bible? For example, what question is Judges asking and how would I discern that? So essentially this is a question that we have said many times this season, uh, whether it's main things or plain things or plain things or main things, or we've said, hey, let's not get too caught up in this, very kind of obscure line of questioning because it's not one of the primary objectives of this passage to teach us about uh, like when we did Noah and the flood we talked mm-hmm. about the age of Noah and how were people living this this long? We said, well, that's a fair it's a fine question but if we're asking what is the primary purpose of this passage, it's not to address, the length of lives that people were living at that time, right? Mm -hmm. Or the days of creation or old earth or young earth. We've said, hey, Genesis 1 is not primarily concerned with answering how old the earth is, right? Mm -hmm. It's not one of the main questions it's asking. So I think this listener is saying, what do you mean? Do you mean that Genesis actually has a set of questions? And like, literally, it's not the questions that Genesis is answering. And why would we say that about Genesis? And how would we discern that about any book of the Bible?
2: Right. This is a really, really good question. And mm-hmm. it and it's one that you start to encounter the more you grow in your knowledge of the scriptures. I think it's not one that immediately we think of, but as we learn to be more adept at approaching them, we do. Um, the 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 question that was submitted says, "Is that literal?" And I just want to say again what we've said at different points: we're looking to read the scriptures literally, um, in order, in, in other words, according to the way they were intended to be read. And so, it doesn't mean that there is not a literal sense of of the text, um, but we want to we want to arrive at that from a literate reading. So yes, there are questions that every author asks and wants to answer when they sit to write. And the same is true of the biblical authors inspired by the Holy Spirit. So even the question that was asked here, of you know, for example, what question is judges asking? Judges has this great repeated idea in it. Um, It's found in chapter two, chapter seventeen, and chapter twenty-one. The idea that in those days, in that time, in Israel, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then it takes that theme and it develops it throughout the book of Judges. So to look at the book of judges and and say you know i'm expecting this to give me plot resolution is an exercise in folly because the book is telling you There will be no plot resolution here. You're going to see everything go wheels off. Not only that, when you begin to realize that's the central theme of the book and read it according to the central theme, you recognize that Judges starts with a tiny spiral of chaos that builds to a giant spiral of chaos by the end of the book. And that helps you understand the ordering of the stories, the message of the, it changes the way that you will read the story of Samson dramatically yep. because he is the last judge that we hear and and by the time you follow the story arc you have to read it differently than a than a than a, than a savior story because um, the point in judges is who will save us Right. Um, so, yeah. So I do think that that's um, what we're trying to do is say, what did the author want me to ask and answer? Not what questions am I going to come and bring to this? It doesn't mean that our questions don't matter. It just means that we need to recognize where they fall in the order of what we're, we're looking for in the text.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fantastic. Um, how would you describe or define the Imago Dei image of God in light of disability? So this is a, first off, thank you for, uh, for asking this question. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you could say this, not just about disability. You could say this about genetic illnesses. You could say this about a lot of things. But I think that um, if I'm reading this question... I don't know who's asked it, if you have a, if there's somebody, I'm sure there's somebody that you know and love in your life that, that may have uh, a disability of some kind. Uh, and so I want to be gentle with this question, knowing that I, I don't really know where it's coming from. Um, but if I was going to just speak to somebody uh, about this just pastorally, I think what I would begin by saying is that uh, God pronounces them image bearers and blessed before they do anything. Okay. Before Adam and Eve, before humanity does anything. Uh, And so bearing the image of God isn't contingent on what we might do as image bearers. Uh, It is contingent on the fact that God has created all of us, male, female, boy, girl, children, adults in the image of God and that this image is bestowed upon humanity in a distinct way that has no corollary or correlation with any other creature. So humans are absolutely distinct in bearing the image of God. Now, um, JT, uh, I'm going to quote JT here, uh, and I think it's a really good way of saying it. I don't know if JT was stealing it from somebody else, but I'm going to give him credit. But JT would often say about the image of God that the image of God means there's no such thing as conditional dignity. Meaning humans don't get more dignity or more honor or more respect or more acclaim in the eyes of God because of anything they might do or not do. Uh, The dignity that is inherent to being a human is true for all humans, past, present, and future, regardless of cognitive or physical abilities. So that may be where I would start. JT, would you add anything to this?
0: No, I wouldn't. I think that's a that's a wonderful answer. And I think you handle it really tenderly, which is really important.
1: So I think that that's a good place for us to start. There will sometimes be, and we've, we even spoke a little bit like this on the show, with the cultural and mandate, we can say that there are some functional aspects to bearing the image of God. The image bearing has some tasks that represent that image. But it's important to understand that the, by that we mean be fruitful and multiply, cultivate and subdue. The cultural mandate is a living out of this image bearing. It's a uh, it's a public display of the image bearing in the world. But that's what it is. It is a display of what is true to God's people by virtue of their status as creature. Um, Mm -hmm. and distinct status as creature, meaning that the public display of these things in what someone can do or is able to do is not what makes them an image bearer. They are able to do these things and are called to do these things because they are an image bearer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's, I think that's, Jane, would you add anything to that?
2: I was just thinking about how this relates to the the pro-life conversation. And I can't remember if we've talked about it here or not. All of our conversations are running together in my head right now. But that, you know, one of the main reasons that we advocate for unborn children is because image bearing is not based on usefulness. Like a, a, a child in utero is not useful in the terms of like they've not perform the, the cultural mandate <laughs> yet, but we affirm right. um, that, that what God has created is good. And so I think that that's a, you know, that's obviously it's not a disability um, um, uh, story, but it's a similar, um, it's a similar uh, uh, analogy that, uh, that if, if a person who's disabled is only viewed in terms of their usefulness and we define usefulness in a particular way, then we miss what image bearing is all about.
0: Oh, and Jen, you can also apply that to, to end-of-life situations, too. Yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That yes. I mean, we, We've we entered a phase of kind of human thinking around what it means to be a human, that it is entirely tied to functionality, yes, ability, production, consumption. And the Christian worldview stands at odds with that understanding of what it means to be a human. And that's, that's why there, there is no condition, whether that is something that is biologically true of us or genetically true of us or something that just becomes true in terms of like our giftedness, or skill sets, Mm -hmm. our youthfulness, or our agedness, that none of those things bear any weight to being an image bearer. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. Who's your favorite person to talk theology with other than each other?
0: I'll take this one. I mean, and I i don't want to say this like just to have like a love fest. It really is the two of you for me. I mean, it is a pure gift to get to talk theology and learn from you guys on a regular basis. So I'm going to answer the question, but I do want to say the question's asked rightly because I love talking theology with you guys. I love talking theology with my wife. My wife yeah. and I, although she's at a very different place in terms of her theological development, she doesn't have formal degrees. She doesn't. She's not a Bible teacher. She doesn't work in ministry, but she's a theologian and she mm-hmm. wants to know God better. And my wife... Macy was the first Christian that I really met and had a relationship with. And she's taught me more about God than any other person, including the two of you, including my seminary professors and pastors, both in the way that she speaks about God and also in the way that she embodies trying to follow Jesus through uh, both triumph and through trial. And so Macy for me, He's definitely that person. I'd also say this has been fun over the last six months is getting to know my new staff here at Storyline. And we're we're doing a lot of kind of training program conversations, TVCI conversations. Some of them listen to Knowing Faith and we're kind of developing some theological vernacular that we share in common, which has been really fun as well.
1: Yeah, I love that. I think our, our spouses would be high on this list for probably all of us. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I have to say uh, for John me, complete. like, what's that?
0: I was going to say, and Jeff Wilkin is on my list too. Yeah. <laughs> Jen, Jen well, you know, I don't, I've, I've
2: said before, like I don't have formal theological training and what theological learning I have done has been done almost entirely until I was working in a setting where I was, you know, running into people like JT and Kyle. It was Jeff. He's been my my conversation partner, you know, for and, and the one who's pushed me beyond the boundaries of um, just the, the Bible study piece. You know, like he was listening to... Um, uh, like the ministry of R.C. Sproul or, you know, he was, he was reading things uh, before uh, we had access to something like a training program, you know, and then he was in the training program um, for three years. And so he's been uh, always my, my first conversation partner on these things. And then like UJT, I have, I have people who now are my colleagues who I, who I, I just, I still can't believe that I know people who I can have these conversations with, um, who, yeah. who know things I don't know and really sharpen me.
1: Agreed. Uh, New ESV translation of Genesis 3.16. Okay, so the, the question was, what do you think about the new ESV translation of Genesis 3.16? Just for those who may not be familiar with this, there are a range of Bible translations, okay? The ESV is the English Standard Version translation. It's published by Crossway. There are other Bible translations out there, the New International Version, the New Revised Standard Version, the King James Version, the New American Standard. I mean, there's a lot of Bible translations, okay? And when we're thinking about translations, the, the, the rule of thumb here is that no translation is going to be superior than a than a serious consideration of the original languages behind it, Hebrew and Greek respectively, uh, and yet most people don't know Hebrew and Greek uh, and because of that we want faithful translations and publishers are keen to give us faithful translations and they're always trying to improve upon those translations as we get a greater understanding of the languages behind those translations. So language, are. understanding of ancient languages continues to develop. We want to continue to be honest in our translations and have them reflect as best we can the language behind them. And so in um, the ESV, uh, gosh, this was in 2016 Mm -hmm. that they made the change. Genesis 3.16 and the previous version reads this way. Let me read it for you and then I'll, I'll read the the, the newer version to the woman he said this uh, this is in Genesis 3 i will surely multiply your chain uh, pain and childbearing in pain you shall bring forth children your de- desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you so that's the pre 2016 2016 to now genesis 316 reads this way to so the woman he said, I will surely multiply multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So the big change here is the previous version or the earlier version, your desire shall be for your husband and the 2016 and, and beyond version, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. So that's the change. So let's just open up the floor here. We've we've made a commitment to one another that we're not going to belabor this too long. We have spoken at length on this podcast about complementarianism, which is involved in this translation conversation. We are not going to, we're going to do our best to stay in regards to the translation here. So any thoughts on this from the two of you? I,
2: yeah, so one of my thoughts is that it does matter that we... Um, JT's laughing because I said I was not going to say anything, and now I'm talking. <laughs> it does matter that we um, pay attention to changes like this, um, and this is a this is a really good reason for us to be looking at multiple translations um, that we can, you know, that we, we that we feel good about as as um, as sound translations. So you know, NIV, ESV, CSB, um, and New English Translation is another one that I'm kind of liking, um, where we're comparing anytime you hit something and you're like, man, I don't know how I feel about that, or that feels weird, or I'm not sure what it means. Compare it in several different translations to see if it can expand your understanding or if you see sort of a consensus between uh, interpreters on on how they would, they would say something. Um, in the case of this verse, I do think there's a lot at stake uh, in the way that it's worded. Um, so if you have an ESV Bible that's later than 2016, this is the translation that you'll have in there. And so just paying attention to those things, knowing that it is, I would say it's important to have a translation that you use as your primary translation because that helps you with remembering. You know, if you're reading the same version over and over again, it helps it get under your skin. But be aware that um, no one translation holds sort of the corner of the market on the, on the translation discussion, and it's good to compare.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a great rule of thumb here. I think just as as a note, you know, uh, the translation committee behind the ESV has made this change uh, because they believe that it more accurately reflects what the preposition that's used here means. So even in the earlier versions, they say, you know, you'll see a little footnote that says that this uh, a word that's translated in the earlier versions as "for" could be translated "against." Um, you see that they're they're going to look at Genesis four eight, mm-hmm. which is Cain and Abel. When you see, if I just read this for you, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. That "against" word there is the is is the same word that's used in Genesis three. That being said, if you go to Song of Songs 7.10, you're going to hear this. Uh, let me pull it up. I had it up here. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So in Song of Songs, the uh, the way that it's translated is not against. It's translated from a place of desire of for, right? Uh, but in Genesis 4.8, it is rightly translated as Cain is... Is, is against, he's doing something that's negative to Abel. So um, there is kind of some interpretive wiggle room here in terms of uh, how this word gets translated. I think because of that, we should be careful that we don't draw uh, too firm a line uh, in the translation of Genesis three sixteen, and I think that reading other inter- uh, reading uh, reading other translations are as helpful to leaven what might be some concrete conclusions you would derive from Genesis three sixteen that are probably more wet cement than this translation would have you believe. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think one of the lessons that we can take away here, even just kind of watching this unfold back in twenty sixteen when we were all working together and talking regularly about mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Is, is um, I'm going to introduce maybe a big category here, but I think it's important. Uh, it's kind of the, the idea of subject, subjectivistic epistemology. By that, what I mean is we all have a certain standpoint or a lens or a way through which we see the world, including the Bible. And that is going to predispose us to either see things or not see things. Uh, it can make us good readers of the Bible, but can also harm our reading of the Bible. So I can't read the Bible except, it, except by anybody as a 35 year old white male who lives in Denver, Colorado. And to be aware of some of those cultural uh, presuppositions can be helpful. That doesn't mean there isn't capital T truth, there absolutely is. It's just our ability to access it comes through our standpoint and, and yep. the, the, in the place that we hold in this mm-hmm. particular translation committee, I think, had a had a specific standpoint on what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, which rather than the text influencing their theological presupposition, they had some cultural presuppositions that influenced the reading of the text. And that, that didn't just happen in that room. That can happen to all of us, which is why it's important to do theology and community to learn from others who maybe share other standpoints. And what I really want to emphasize here too at the end is is I was really proud of Crossway. The publishers of this as they mm-hmm. retracted this. I mean, and that's what you do when you all of us make mistakes theologically, and they retracted this translation. They had said they were going to make it permanent. It's no longer permanent. And mm-hmm. they said, this isn't the correct translation. And that's that's godliness.
1: That's humility yeah. for them it's to be able to make that step. a big deal
2: too. Oh, I yeah, mean, that, sure. that d- doesn't always happen. So it's yep. a big deal.
1: Absolutely. Um, all right. When was the promise of the land fulfilled in the Abrahamic covenant? Was it fulfilled during David or Solomon's reign?
0: Am I supposed to put on my dispensationalist hat here? (laughs)
2: Oh my gosh, we do not have time for dispensational Danny today. (laughs)
1: We we don't, I'm, uh, well, I mean, what what do you want to say, JT? I mean, I think if I heard this question, I would say the promise of the land had temporary fulfillment uh, during the reign of Solomon. During the reign of David, they're in the land. They have the land. The temple is built in the land. Now that doesn't stay that way for a long time. We get a momentary fulfillment, but the forever fulfillment of this is still to come. That's is that how you would say it?
0: Uh, well, dispensationalists would say it that way. Welcome to being a dispensationalist, Kyle. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But it is important for people to know that good Bible readers again read this differently. There's a group of of kind of a theological camp called dispensationalists. This is things like Dallas Seminary, Chuck Swindoll, if you're if, David Jeremiah that would believe this is still a future fulfillment and that it's specifically going to be given to God's ethnic people, Israel. This is one of the reasons that you even have political movements today arguing for the United States embassy to be in Jerusalem and for Israel to be a sovereign state in the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that being said, I, I don't hold that position. I actually believe that this, this is in some sense still future, but all of God's promises have their yes and amen in Christ. And he is the... this. I know this can be cheesy language sometimes, the greater and truer fulfillment of the land promised. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get the language of, of, of union with Christ. If, if the promise of the Old Testament is that you will be in the land, the fulfillment in the New Testament is that you are in Christ and that he is the one in whom we have an inheritance laid up for us in heaven, which is, which is also the way Ephesians and Colossians talks about union with Christ. So can I get an amen from my union with Christ scholar? Amen. There it
1: is. Anything to add to that, Jen? Nope. Uh, if God is the one who gives faith and he wishes that none should perish, why doesn't he give the gift of faith to everyone? Mm. This is a hard question. Mm. This is a hard question. Um, well, uh, so this is because God, in his unconditional favor, and electing love has chosen before the foundation of the world those to whom will belong to Him, and uh, and has passed over in one reading or has judged against those who will not. Depending on where you fall on that spectrum, um, God does desire that none should perish, um, and none who belong to God in Christ will perish.
2: Can we can we deal with that? particular verse, because sure. I think that's an important one for us to have the context for. That's Second Peter 3, 9. Mm-hmm. And it says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it's important for us to ask contextually what's going on there. When it says that the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise, what's being referenced is a a false teaching that's circulating at the time that Peter is writing this epistle, that because Christ has not returned yet, he is never returning. Mm -hmm. And so there is an assurance here from Peter to his audience who is a believing audience. What does he say? He says... He says, not wishing that any should, he says, uh, is patient toward you. He does not say is patient toward all. So he's addressing the church. And he says, the Lord is patient toward you, even as you are being patient, awaiting his return. And that the longer the Lord tarries, the more opportunity there is for repentance among the people of God. So that's just where that verse falls contextually. But Mm -hmm. there is this bigger question of why doesn't God save everyone? Which yep. Kyle was addressing,
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think that's important context, Jen. Um, and I do think that the big, the I think the question beneath here is, hey, why, why isn't that the case for everyone? And the answer is, we don't know outside of God's sovereign electing love and grace. Um, we do know that the reason for hardened hearts and the reason, the reason for the judgment of sin is human rebellion. Mm-hmm. That when Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam, and that uh, before. Uh, uh, God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. But in Adam, we all rejected God. Everybody, for all time, not just Adam, not just Eve, but everyone for all time rejected God. And yet his faithful covenant love to his people is unchanging. It's never stopping. It's never giving up. And he is not going to fail his promises towards his people, never
2: well, and I do think that there's this sense, you know we read verses like second Peter three nine, and we can develop this idea that um, God allows his judgment to fall on people who if they had been given just 10 more minutes would have changed their minds. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not, that, that would mean God is unjust. Yep. So um, just bear in mind, you know, try not to get sucked into a pattern of thinking of, you know, why doesn't God save everyone without starting first with marveling that God saves anyone at all. Yeah. Um, and so I know that that's a very pat and neat way to address. I, I'm not trying to just like squash this question. I sure. think it's a really good question, but I do think it's also really important for us to keep as our frame of reference that God was obligated to save none of us. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yet he does. And that those who who will not enter into salvation would not have repented had they been given more time.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the ways Tom Schreiner handles this text is he talks about, Uh, this language can get a little strange sometimes, but I I do think it's right. God's desired will and God's decreed will and kind of two two will philosophical sense. And that really isn't sleight of hand. I think that's one of the best ways that church history has found to deal with complex passages like this that also run contrary, can seem to run contrary to like a Romans chapter nine, which is exactly what Kyle was just walking through. And so, We need to have a way of thinking about God's desire for all to be saved that also corresponds to humanity's rebellion in Adam in -hmm. God's gracious decree to save the elect in Christ. Absolutely.
2: These are very hard things that require a lot of thought. So please don't hear us in a Q and A going, there you go guys, wrapped it all Uh, up for you. (laughs) because,
0: Because for some people it's usually like, this isn't just a, I just read my Bible and I have a question, it's a person. In mind yes I've got absolutely in mind
2: absolutely yeah so, so I have people in mind when I ask this question
0: yeah there's yeah. there's names and faces and relationships and we understand that and Jen your point I think is well taken is that at the end of the day none of us have an ability to save ourselves but God but God is the one who gives grace this is gracious that he saves mm-hmm. any.
1: Mm-hmm. next question when is it okay to leave a church this is a, uh, this is typically a question to you that when somebody is asking it, there are very real circumstances surrounding it. Mm-hmm. So if you're weighing this, just know we don't know who you are or your circumstances. And we're going to, any answer we provide would probably be more specific if we knew the specifics around where you're at in your circumstances. But yeah. I'll just get us opened up here. When is it okay to leave a church? Well, when the church abandons the gospel, that would be a high level thing. Now, what is abandoning the gospel? Because right now it feels like if if somebody has a difference of opinion on you on anything uh, in the church, they have abandoned the gospel. That is not the that's not true. Uh, if you're thinking about abandoning the gospel, I think biblically it's what Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians of what he has delivered to you as of first importance, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So I would say if that is denied or uh, if something that is what we might call creedal consensus or orthodox Christian belief, I take as a rule the, the Apostles' Creed, uh, Nicaea, Chalcedon, if somebody denies the deity of Jesus, the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead, the uh, fact that God has spoken to us, any of these things, I would say, okay, you're now in a place where I, I don't know that I would even call it a church. So you would; those would be re- okay reasons to leave the church. Those aren't all the, Oh, that's not like, I didn't just give you the only reasons you could leave a church. I just gave you some reasons that for which you might leave a church. Anything to add to that? I mean, there's so much to add here. Um, I could keep going, but JT, Jen, do you guys have anything?
0: I don't think so. I mean, uh, this is probably over, maybe I use hyperbole too much, but like you should think about leaving the church the way you think about leaving a family.
1: Yeah, Uh, that's good.
0: Again, that's not a perfect analogy. Again, family dynamics are different than church dynamics, but if the church is the family of God and not just a nonprofit that you happen to hop in and out of depending on what they're offering you, I mean, think about it. Are you willing to leave your brothers and sister over, over something that is this insignificant or perhaps this significant, right? Like there's there's times to remove yourself from very, very unhealthy or abusive family dynamics, certainly, which I would say then therefore you should also leave a church in those kinds of situations. But if what you're talking about here is primarily preferential driven mm-hmm. or keeping yourself at the center of the conversation, what am I getting out of this family? Not what am I contributing to this family? <clears throat> then I think it's probably time to hang in there. And And, mm-hmm. and you've, you have bound yourself to God's people, not just in a universal sense, but in a local sense. And God has ordained that you be a part of that church.
2: Yeah. I uh, actually wrote something back when TVC had a blog. Remember that, guys? Didn't oh, you yeah. edit that um, one? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think when I wrote this, I did, but yes. Clickbait oh, <laughs> Worley. Thanks. Thanks for bringing it up. <laughs> Clickbait Worley. I wrote a piece called Unity and Diversity, if you want to um, look that up. Um, and read more about this where, where I kind of break down the difference between essentials, convictions, and preferences in light of this very question. So that might be helpful. Yeah, and all of this conversation that we've had through different episodes about theological triage and being able to determine what's a first-order issue or a second or third-order issue all plays into this. But that is not to downplay what JT was pointing out, the significance of the, the personal you know, like I've been in tough church situations before where you really, even if you were in total agreement theologically or philosophically, you still have to do the heart work of, am I growing more bitter or more loving in this in this setting? Um, and just assessing your own spirit, your own spiritual health around around that. So it, it, it is not always, it is not cut and dried because it's as unique as any individual in any particular church, but there are some some helpful ways to think about it, I think.
1: All right. Uh, What are some practical tips for starting a theological program for women at your church?
2: Uh, I mean do it, but yeah go, for it. Uh, yeah, go for it. You won't meet any opposition. No, you probably <laughs> wouldn't meet any, but I mean, I think if at all possible, you know, do a, do something that's men and women, if at all possible. But if that's something that's not possible in your setting, then, um, start the conversation with, um, the powers that be and uh, to see if there's receptiveness to it. And, um, you know, if it's something that your church doesn't want to get behind, but you feel strongly about it, um, and you know that the, it's something that the Lord is calling you to to do, then you can respectfully uh, have a dialogue with your church about, hey, I get that this doesn't fall under the scope of what we're wanting to do, but I would really like to do this for friends and neighbors in my home. and And... Go do the work that the Lord has called you to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, I do think we've said over and over again this is a this is a wonderful thing to happen inside the church. But it but we've also seen you know people take what we've been doing inside the church and replicate it in living rooms. Absolutely. Uh, and so so you know you you can do that. And I'd say that the in terms of practically starting it, you're going to need people to help you. You're going to need a team around you and you're going to need a good plan that doesn't reinvent the wheel. So you want to look at what others are doing uh, successfully at a LA lay level and, and model what you want to build off of that. Um, if you're wondering what you would teach in something like that, then you're not ready to start it yet. You need to do some homework into looking into what others have already built.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say shameless plug, pick up a copy of Deep Discipleship. Read that would be a great place to mm-hmm. jump in and take a look at I mean honestly the book is incredibly practical. You can deploy what's in the book and it would have a lot of insight here. Come spend time with us. Yep. And if you're in a church leadership, if you're in a church leadership position, come spend time with us in the training the church cohort. That's why we built that thing. You can find more information at trainingthechurch.com. It's why it exists, is to help answer questions like this. Really on the ground, I would say if you're, I'm answering this not for a Bible study, because if you think if you don't have a Bible study in place, build the Bible study first.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Like if there's no place for men and women to be inductively studying the word of God build that before you build a theological program. But let's imagine you have that laid out and you want to do something that is more, not a Bible study, but is something along the theological program. There's a lot that you could do. We hear routinely about listeners of Knowing Faith who get with other listeners of Knowing Faith in the life of their church. They listen to an episode and then they meet together to talk about it. They find an article online, they talk about the article, then they listen to the episode. That would be something simple. You could find one of the catechisms. The Westminster Shorter Catechism works very effectively in this regard. Take the Westminster Shorter Catechism and address the questions and answers that way. That'll give you a really clear scope and sequence Mm -hmm. to what you're talking about. You could do a book study and find books about key doctrines and go through them that way. Um, I think all of those are good, basic, simple ways to start doing this.
0: Amen to all of that. Final thing: strategy matters a a lot here, and planning mm-hmm. matters a lot. The only thing that matters more is culture. Is be be this before you plan to go do it. Whether that's, yep. as Jen said, that's just good. in your living room with others, just having conversations, reading theologically, taking the Bible seriously. So we can talk plan and strategy all day long. But until you have a a theologically charitable charitable culture, it's going to be tough.
3: Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a bible passage the courage for life study bibles for women and the courage for life study bibles for men have over 1400 bible studies that's a bible study on every page of bible text Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. your copy today.
1: Uh, what did you think about the West Wing reunion? Have you guys watched the West Wing reunion yet? This is one of those pieces of shame in my life. I haven't. I haven't either. Haven't watched it yet. I get haven't f- either. Get a free seven-day HBO Max trial and just watch it. And then cancel it. Pull out of it. Oh and my gosh,
2: that's the problem. I didn't know it was on HBO. You know, I think H- I've HBO told Max. you guys. You know what my mom called HBO when I was growing up? No. Hell's box office.
1: Sure, <laughs> <laughs> so you're right. Not sure I can <laughs> that is- even
2: get a seven day uh, subscription to Hell's box office. But
1: well, uh, <laughs> I'll just, I'll just, I'm gonna reserve my thoughts on this until we can all talk about it together. <laughs> um, How about uh, this? I, pro- I promise
0: by. I promise by the next time we record, I will have watched this. Good.
1: Okay, um, let's just, we'll make a pact. We're in. That's what I want to hear. Yeah. Um. All right. Could you explain the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture? JT, this is to you. Yeah. yeah I'd be happy to. The Bible is
0: sufficient to to do and be what it says it will do and be. And so, what we're not saying is the Bible sufficient to make you an NBA basketball player or a chiropractor <laughs> or a lawyer. But sometimes people, I, I'm obviously joking, but sometimes people extend the sufficiency of Scripture beyond what it claims to be sufficient for. The Bible right. claims to be sufficient to lead us to life and godliness in Christ. It doesn't claim to be sufficient in, in every kind of help that the hum, a human might need, whether that's medical help or therapeutic help or psychological help, though it can be helpful but it is sufficient to sanctify us through the power of the Holy Spirit to offer us the gospel in Christ and to lead us into everlasting life with him. Not only is it sufficient to do that, it is efficient to do that. It, it, it does, the word does the work. We we're faithful to preach the word of God because as we do it, it works efficaciously in the life of those whom God has called.
1: That's good. Love it. Um, what are your favorite hymns? Oh my gosh! Mighty how much time do, do we God. have? <laughs> 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 oh man, I love I love hymns. Be Thou My Vision is my number one with a bullet. I thought I you could. were
0: going to go with some Bethel stuff here, Kyle.
1: Don't 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 make this about where we disagree. <laughs> make this about where we agree. JT, um, Be Thou My Vision number one with a bullet, top choice. I could I, if every Sunday we sing Be Thou My Vision, I would ask, could we start singing it twice every Sunday?
2: Okay, you know that was sung at my wedding. Really? Yeah, we had it. My cousin sang it, and then it was it was sung at uh, my daughter's wedding, also, or played at my daughter's wedding. I love yeah. it. We're Irish, so okay. We we kind of own that hymn. That's ours. Yeah, that's uh, but that's actually not my favorite hymn. My favorite is "Immortal, Invisible," Whoa. which I have made the training program sing every time I've taught on the attributes of God. And it does not go well, because apparently I am the only person in the room who still knows immortal, invisible, God only wise. But I love that one. And then Anything by Charles Wesley. That dude knew the
1: Bible. Knew the Bible, immortal, invisible. The first time I heard "Immortal, Invisible" was when you taught in the training program
2: and made you sing it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I was like, ah,
1: da, da, ah. "Yeah." And like,
2: I'm, you know, I want like the organ that makes your insides turn to jelly when you hit the fourth verse. Mm-hmm. And instead, we had a 15 year old uh, guy on the guitar who was like, "I've never heard this before." He kind of like souped up the tempo a little bit. I was like. This is not my vision.
1: This is not my vision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Lord of <in> my heart. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, that's good.
0: Jt, A mighty fortress is our uh, God. Yeah. Martin yeah. Luther. I, that would have been,
1: I was, if, if I had $10 in my pocket, I would have put, I put $9.87 if that was your choice.
2: Yeah.
0: But, hey, can I ask yeah. you guys a question about Be Thou My Vision? Oh, I know what you're I don't gonna know. do. Are here. you gonna be ugly? i gonna be ugly. Just buckle your seatbelt, okay? Now you're now you're this is like defamation of character. You
1: did this. You have you the trained, little
2: smirk he, on your face. He
1: would do this oh, in the training real, program and plus people, plus people plus would literally be like, JT has ruined be that my vision. I
0: don't want to ruin it. I like okay. it too. We we sang it here two weeks ago. So like, okay. I'm for this song. I think that it's a good song. I'm not trying to but I do have a question about but. it. Mm. <laughs> so Dude, hit me. Go for it. Do you have Does your Trinitarianism run in conflict with the lyric, thou my great father, and I thy true son, thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one.
2: No, because isn't it like union with Christ mashup?
0: Well, that could be called modalism. (laughs) (laughs) Matching up the persons of the Trinity. It's a trap. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm really not trying to trap you, but it, it does say that the father is dwelling in us. Yep which is not awesome.
1: It's not, it, it, it is not, it is not, uh, uh, it's not fully indicative of the relationship between us and God. It is certainly paraphrased in a way that I, when I, every time I sing that song, I remind myself, like, I know, this is where I feel like there are some songs we get to sing only when our people's theological literacy is, Is the bar is raised, Mm. and that theological foundation can provide the proper kind of guardrails for maybe areas of the song that are more murky than we'd like them to be.
2: Oh, I have a hot take on hymns, and I'm definitely changing the subject. Um, If you don't sing "Christ (laughs) the Lord is Risen Today" on Easter, you did not have Easter.
1: The end. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, no, I uh, I want to just commend, if you are writing songs, cr- like worship songs. It's hard work. You have a hard it's job. It's hard, very hard. Work. It is hard. I mean, uh, Be Thou My Vision is basically in the gold standard. If you were listing like the 20 songs on your hymn album, mm-hmm. you know, wow, greatest hymns, uh, then Be Thou My Vision is going to be up there. And the song has some idiosyncrasies that are you have to kind of move past. And it's it's a classic. It's like, well, it's, it it it's a sub song. I, it JT, is
0: a wonderful Christian hymn.
1: JT, it was written in
2: the 6th or the 8th century in Scottish Gaelic. So if you would like to take a crack at a better translation of the Scottish Gaelic, knock yourself out.
0: Boom. I'm good. I'm, I'm just going to stick with, with my boy Martin <laughs> Luther.
1: I got that. Um, um, I I was like, wow, you got that off the top of the dome. That is impressive. "Mm -mm." He wants to fight. I'm going to Wikipedia this. I'm not trying to fight.
0: I like it. I want to say, here's this. uh, We sang a song at our wedding. We sang, oh God, how deep the father's love for us. Mm -hmm. We did too. It's a great song. I still listen to it and love it, but it has some.
1: There's some stuff. Okay, we don't have time. We got more questions. Uh, yeah, and this next one is a doozy. Uh, do you think God made another world before this one? Just a simple softball question.
0: I don't know how we would know the answer to that question, but mm-hmm. my my gut is no. Yeah,
1: that's my gut too. Could I kind of could I could I throw something in here that's just weird? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. I'm not saying God. I do not believe God made another world before this one. But I just want to be, I want to be very, very clear. <laughs> Kyle Worley does not believe God made another world before this one. But However. <laughs> however, um, there is sometimes we'll talk about a multiple worlds hypothesis which is getting into questions of God's knowledge where we posit the theoretical existence of multiple worlds in order to make sense of why this world is the way that it is. It's typically done around something like the problem of evil. So maybe you're asking this question because you're familiar with multiple worlds Stuff. It's pretty common in some of the philosophic, Christian philosophy, and apologetic literature, which is dragon slayer blogs. Don't even don't do that to me. You 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 know you know there are serious voices on this issue. Um, But uh, but in brief, the idea is that God doesn't just have knowledge of everything that is and everything that isn't. He has knowledge of everything that could be. Mm -hmm. This is called middle knowledge. It's not just yeses and nos, it's all of the what ifs. And that in a way to talk around the problem of evil uh, and God's sovereignty in a world that has evil, this multiple worlds hypothesis is put forward that God saw every potential world that could exist that would maximize human freedom and limit the impact of evil in the world. And he chose to create or actualize the world that we're currently in because it was the best of all possible possible worlds. <laughs> now, if you want to hear more about that, I don't. then don't go talk to JT because he's going <laughs> to, he's going to troll you, but it is a legitimate form of argumentation. And, uh, but I do not think, I want to be clear. Let me land the plane. I do not believe God made another world before this one. Okay. Kyle. Anything to add to that? Yes. Jen, you have a lot of thoughts on multiple worlds hypothesis. So why about don't you tell it. the audience?
2: Uh, no, <laughs> I want to talk about turtles. <laughs> Because I <laughs> no, don't. No, no, no. Ever since you told Turtles All the Way Down, I have seen it everywhere. I'm having this terrible exactly. turtle hypervigilance moment where I came across <laughs> it in a country and Western song, first of all. And then I find out it's coming from Stephen Hawking, right? That is that where you read yep. it? Yep. So then it shows up well, in my well, fiction well, I mean, book I'm yeah. reading. And I'm like, get out of my head, Kyle Worley,
1: with your turtles. Yeah, you guys acted like I was from a different planet. Well, it was, well, totally it
0: was you were from the planet from the world that God uh-huh. already created.
2: It was it was <laughs> more the way you rendered the story than the story itself.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair guys, enough. it's turtles. Get it? <laughs> turtles, turtles, all the all way down. The way down. Um, it has come up in a very big way in our text thread between the three of us as well. Oh, Let yeah. the listener understand <laughs> with some turtle mentions in the news this there past week. There have been and, some and, obese but, turtle mentions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> obese turtles are out there in the news. Um, <laughs> uh, what you is this
0: I, part of our Patreon uh, account is like screenshots of our text thread. No God. You. No.
1: I, I mean, <laughs> we would increase the Patreon and lose our jobs in the process. Um, <laughs> What is discipleship and how, where does uh, discipleship happen? What does it mean to make disciples? Now, none of us have any thoughts on this. Certainly no published thoughts on how, where, and when, and what a disciple is. Um, I am working on a book though right now that's, uh, it's called Deeper Discipleship. It's in, <laughs> it's in response to a recent work uh, and uh, arguing for just something a little bit more substantive than what's currently been put forward. I no, was just Jay- going for accessibility <laughs> at the level.
2: (laughs) Okay. So I do want to say though, this is, it is, it continue. it will always be a good question. It will be asked by every generation of believers. And, um, and there is a very uh, textbook answer that you could give, right? You could say, you could give a holistic, to to use the popular term, a holistic definition of discipleship that is a a whole person um, definition. And we should have that. Um, but I think that the second important question to ask is in my generation of the church, which part of this definition? has perhaps become atrophied. And that is why you hear on our broadcast and in our settings, us emphasizing a particular aspect of holistic discipleship that we think matters for the church today. We think it matters for the church of all times, but we see in particular during our lifetimes um, that the idea of recapturing the idea of the life of the mind um as as a as a key element of holistic discipleship is, is 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 top of mind for the three of us. Would
1: you say that's fair, guys? Oh yeah, for sure. Yep. Absolutely. And not as if the person is divided. Right. It's just that they're it's just that the church has been emphatic about um, like if we just say a disciple is someone who loves the Lord, their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, then the emotive aspects of that for the last 25 or 30 years, arguably since the turn of the 20th century, mm-hmm. uh, have been emphasized to the detriment of some of the other aspects there. We just want to be, and I think others too, want to want to recover uh, a little bit more of the roundedness mm-hmm. of uh, the vision for discipleship. So uh uh how where does discipleship happen JT any thoughts <laughs> any published thoughts on how got, and where discipleship
0: happens got a few hot, t- hot takes there the reality is, is discipleship can happen anywhere i mean it mm-hmm. happens it could be happening right now through a knowing faith podcast or through uh some other resource that you're using or bible study fellowship or a community women's bible study or a seminary but ideally the way the bible talks about discipleship is ideally we shouldn't ask the question where can discipleship happen but where should it happen and the bible unequivocally makes it clear that discipleship is meant to happen among the family of god the local church as we seek to be an embodied people extending the presence of christ to a lost and dying world. So that happens in the context of brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers who been brought together through their union with Christ and proclamation of the gospel in the world, in local churches.
1: All three of us are firmly committed to the local church being the epicenter of discipleship in the life of the Christian, mm-hmm. normative, as a normative pattern. Um, <clears throat> uh, is doubt a sin? I, I, I would say that doubt, and guys, I could be way off here. Uh, I would say that doubt is an impact of sin. I don't know that I would say doubt is a sin. I would say that doubt is an impact of sin because of sin's impact on us, not just that we have received uh, the responsibility of sin or the nature that is bent towards sin or the inheritance of guilt that accompanied Adam and Eve's sin. We've also just received the broken estate of sin and doubt is a natural impact of sin, meaning that doubt is not always an expression of sin or a manifestation. It's not, it's not always a sinful act. I think more than anything, it's a demonstration of sin's impact on us as maybe how I would say it. Um, that is that, that's not to say that doubt is good or that doubt is holy. It's just to say that not every aspect of brokenness we experience in our lives and in the life of the world is a fruit of our personal sin. I think that doubt would be included in the cumulative impact of sin on the world and on the human heart as well. Is that, am I crazy here?
0: No, I actually think that's, I have not thought of it that way before. I'm, I'm fine with that uh, kind of distinction, but I do not, I think it's really important that we say doubt is not a sin. I actually think f- faith almost necessary like it necessitates doubt because Mm -hmm. we are not talking about complete assurance. Faith is the assurance of things not yet seen. Absolutely. The author of Hebrews tells us, but Calvin has this to say about faith and doubts. He says, faith is subject to various doubts, doubts, anxieties, and distresses, so that the minds of believers are seldom at rest or at least are not always tranquil. Still, whatever be the engines by which they are shaken, they either escape from the whirlpool of temptation all remain steadfast in their place. Faith finds security only in the gospel. So, what Calvin is saying there is the life of faith is also a life of doubt. It's not—it's not uncertainty. It's not—or uh, certainty in the doubts. But he is saying that there is a sense if—if if we have not yet seen what we believe our eyes will one day see, doubt is a necessity that corresponds to faith. Which mm-hmm. I think for—for for me, and I imagine for a lot of our listeners, gives it a lot of peace. I mean, when, and again, this isn't just an intellectual yeah. exercise. We have some friends, some very dear friends who are walking through a significant mm-hmm. tragedy right now. And mm-hmm. I can't imagine walking through that kind of tragedy without having some kind of doubt. God, mm-hmm. are you who you say you are? Are you going to yeah. do what you said? You, are you good like mm-hmm. I believed you were? I don't think those are wrong questions. As a matter of fact, when we do the training program lecture on wisdom literature, we talk about that kind of doubt that takes doubts to God is actually the supreme evidence of faith Yes, that you could go to your father and say, Hey, wait a second. I thought you said, I thought we were going to help me here. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I think when we take our doubts into the presence of God, you could actually argue it's the supreme evidence of faith.
2: I would, I would even say that because we have not taught people to think of doubt in those terms, we find ourselves in the situation we do with people thinking that the purpose of Christianity is to remove all doubt. Um, And so, So in other words, um, even the way that I pray, I pray asking God to give me answers so I won't have to live in doubt. You know, so like, uh, should I do X, Y, or Z? Lord, remove my doubt about what the next move is by telling me what it is. And so we turn Christianity into a doubt remediation process instead of um, doubt being the vehicle by which our faith grows and thrives. Over the long term, because again, it's this whole issue of delayed gratification um, that we that that part of being steadfast is persevering through doubt to the other side. And so, when we say I don't want to faith the doubts, we're saying I also I don't want steadfastness. I just want I just want to have you know the security of this right now. Um, but we acknowledge I think you know in com- in practical conversations like in ministry settings, I will say that there are two kinds of doubters. Right, there is a doubter who wants to disbelieve, and there's a doubter. Who who wants to believe? And those are two very mm-hmm. different conversations. Uh, the doubter who wants to yeah. disbelieve is—is is, I guess you could say, in the language that you were using, Kyle, is giving in to a temptation, uh, or is or is leaning toward the temptation of disbelief in a way that the doubter who is yeah. willing to believe is not. Um, so yeah. that would just be a, a practical point I would point out.
1: Did I yeah, say anything and, and crazy? Christian, no, I think that's really good. Okay. No no i think that's really good the only thing that i might just add to this and it's unique to our cultural moment not unique to our cultural moment but it's unique to the mediums in our cultural moment is there is currently a glorifying of doubt And also, too, I would say a commodifying of Christian doubt, meaning that deconstruction and these kind of uh, faith deconstruction narratives Mm -hmm. have become a way of leveraging platform for monetization. And unfortunately, that is happening uh, and it's happening at a prolific level. And while I think that most of the time it's overblown in terms of what the actual data suggests. The data does not suggest that on a global level, the Christian faith is right. being deconstructed at all. The data suggests that on a global level, the Christian faith is growing like wildfire. But in the global West, we've commodified the doubt experience. And I think it's reprehensible and disgusting. Uh, can, you so- a,
2: can you give a, a non-incriminating example of how this conversation has played out on a platform maybe?
1: Yeah, so gosh, I've got a lot of specific ones, but in a, in a way that's not accusatory, I would be I would say something like this. I would say that uh, there is um, in a spirit of authenticity, or uh, let's mm-hmm. say this within saying. the guise within the guise of authenticity. Let me tell you that uh, let me tell you all of the doubts i have and tell you that it's okay that you never work towards certainty yes. or confidence in christ because it's a much uh, we're freer when we experience, when we embrace an ocean of uncertainty and doubt yeah. than when we try to stand on the firm solid rock of God's Mm -hmm. word. And I just think, and that sells well because it, what it does is it, 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 it aligns with some of the impact of sin on our life and it justifies a resignation um, around uncertainty. I can, I'll never be able to have certainty Mm -hmm. on these matters. And if Mm -hmm. you can stay in that place where you never have certainty on matters of scripture and the call of Christ Mm -hmm. on your life, then do you know what? You get to live however you want to and call it Christianity yeah. You're a your relativist and, and an individualist. Like, and that has been packaged and commodified in a way mm-hmm. that is uh, not good to say the very least. Well, the irony
0: is that the only thing they think they can be certain about is doubt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it is a it is a animal that eats itself. Mm-hmm.
1: For sure. Yeah, yeah it's true. Um, all right. What advice do you give to someone just starting out as a pastor? Pray. Pray, listen and pray. Mm-hmm listen and pray and learn, listen and pray and learn and realize that you probably know just enough to be dangerous on a range of topics. So yeah.
0: I would say pray and be with, be with people. It's really easy to just get stuck in your office, planning, preparing, studying, go to dinners, go to coffees, go to yeah. hospitals, go visit the yeah. people that God has entrusted to your care.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. I think those are, those I are think I would ones. say
2: as a, le- you know, as someone who's sitting in the pews, remember what it was like to be the person in the pews. Like, Um, Mm -hmm. don't, don't, don't grow too distant from your own experience of being not the pastor um, so that you can, Mm -hmm. you know, keep in view the needs of those sitting in the pews.
1: Agreed. Um, Okay. I'm so excited about this question. I know this last question is a great one to end on. It's a lot of fun. Um, All right. Let's start with you, JT. If you could have a table discussion with any three, three theologians, past or present, Who would be at your table?
0: Jen Wilkin, Kyle Worley, and Matt. Oh,
2: my gosh.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. Rarefied
0: air. Here's my my real answer. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. (laughs) Thank you. Second (laughs) would be Thomas Aquinas. And third would be Herman Bovink. Okay. That would be a good one. That'd be a good table. That'd be a good table. I would not say a single word.
1: You'd ask some questions. i well, maybe <laughs> I probably just listen. <laughs> I don't want. What do you got, Jen, Jen? you got something? You need more time.
2: Mine are a little lowbrow. I they're not. They're they're too recent for JT, who went all the way back to Hippo. Um, but it's I would. These are just. A- these are just people who've helped me. So, and I'm yeah. not even. I don't even know that they would be like you know friendly people to hang out with. But they're thinking it's helped me. Uh, RC Sproul, everybody knows. I love him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arthur Pink, who sounds like he was super cranky in real life, but he's healthy too. <laughs> and then um, Stephen Charnock. I would like okay. to talk to him about the attributes of God.
1: That's a great that's a great table. It's mm-hmm. a great table. Um, I would say I'd like to blend together tr- like the ancient or the historical and the contemporary. So I'd probably do something like John Calvin, Kevin Van Hooser, and... You know what? I'm just because I'm reading her right now, and I think it would be fun. And she's a Bart scholar, and she's contemporary, Catherine Sondruger. She, I is. would be. A, yep. It's like she is lights out, and she's blowing my mind right now. <laughs> and so I feel like that would be a really because like you'd have the Bart component, you'd have Van Hooser, who is is in that Reformed space, but knows contemporary theology, and then you'd have Calvin. That would be a fun table, I think, to be at. I like that
2: nobody, nobody set up a imagine. theological smackdown. Like you didn't pit people against each other at your table?
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, I'm looking for a fun dinner. I'm looking for a fun (laughs) dinner with with three... Theologians John Calvin and Jacob Arminius. Right, that's what I'm saying. Right, right. Or Luther, Luther, and anybody. You know, (laughs) you put Luther at the table with anybody, and it's about to go down. Uh Um, Well, listen, we got more questions than we could have possibly addressed. We went an hour, and there were a lot more questions that we just couldn't get to. We do have. I'll just tell you this. Let me just signal to you. Wink, wink, nod, nod. There will be another Q and A episode that we'll release before the spring. So when it will release, I cannot tell you. No uh, one knows the day uh, or the hour. No one knows the day or the hour. But if you want to hear us talk through more questions, there's another one that'll come out. Patreon users get that one ahead of time. If you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media at Knowing Faith Podcast, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. If you want to join the conversation a little bit more behind the scenes, you can jump into our Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash knowing faith. That is what we have for today. Thank you for listening. We are honored that you follow along with us. Thank you for sticking through us with this new season. Grace and peace.